Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 97 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And of course, we'd like to introduce the pimping bell. When you hear that sound, it means something especially question-worthy or testable is coming up, so consider paying extra attention. As you know, every two weeks, we show up in your AirPods to discuss with you some of the latest research in the world of clinical dermatology, and today, of course, is no exception. I want to get started with an article out of JAMA Dermatology. It's called Association of Risk of Incident Venous Thromboembolism with Atopic Dermatitis and Treatment with Janus Kinase Inhibitors, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Authors include Tai Li Chen and Ching Chi Chi out of Taiwan. So... Jack inhibitors, Michelle, mm-hmm. they're approved for And they're derm hot stuff. right now. They're so, so hot. hot. Yeah. <laughs> so in dermatology, they're approved for atopic dermatitis of age 12 and up. That's upadacitinib and abrocitinib. And then they're also approved for alopecia areata. That's baricitinib, age 18 and up. And, you know, in a bunch of trials, they're going to get approved for other stuff. I think we all believe for vitiligo, certainly, and probably for some other things. And the age range is going to keep decreasing as well. So, should we use them? Are they effective and safe? Well, we've discussed some of those issues before. And one way in which they may be unsafe is thromboembolic events. So, there have been a few potential signals for VTE, venous thromboembolism, in some of these JAK inhibitor trials, especially that oral surveillance study, which was kind of a landmark study we discussed back in episode 70-something, I want to say. Um, There weren't a whole lot of them, but still some signals. But as again, we've discussed before, the people in that trial specifically are not really the same population as that treated by dermatologists. So does a 65-year-old man with diabetes and hypertension and rheumatoid arthritis who's also on methotrexate, does his risk of venous thromboembolism on a JEK inhibitor translate to the 25-year-old, otherwise healthy young woman with atopic dermatitis that I want to treat? Not quite sure. Well, I would say no. But this (laughs) study uh, searched databases and included almost 470,000 people from various studies on JAK inhibitors and atopic dermatitis, including two cohort studies and 15 randomized controlled trials. And basically what they found is that Atopic dermatitis itself does not increase the risk of venous thromboembolism. Cool. It's a relief. Don't know if any of you guys were worried about that, but that was 460,000 of these 470,000 individuals that this study combed were looking at that issue. And then neither does treating it with the JAK inhibitor. So that was about 9,000 individuals with atopic dermatitis across these 15 randomized controlled trials who were treated with JAK inhibitors they did not have more venous thromboembolic events than those who were treated with placebo or with dupilumab, which were the comparisons. Potential, so so that's it, basically. Short, easy, don't worry about this particular side effect. Hopefully, 
Uh, some limitations were that most of these studies included young to middle-aged adults, though one enrolled only adolescents. So perhaps older adults do have an increased risk of venous thromboembolism with JAK inhibitors. We can't really say for sure. And of course, the JAK inhibitors that were included in these studies are those that have been approved that we've already mentioned, the abracitinib, upadacitinib, and baricitinib. And then there's also another one that was included that doesn't yet have an official name. Other limitations are this was specifically in Western countries, so whether or not this is generalizable to other countries is perhaps a question. Also, perhaps the duration of treatment was too short to reveal an increase in VTEs, of course, because those are pretty rare events. And, and these were usually randomized controlled trials, you know, that looked at people at three months, four months, maybe a year, but not like 10 years. So they say real world data will, of course, be helpful. But so far, things are looking pretty good. Awesome. I think that um, a lot of uncertainty in the use of the Janus kinase inhibitors is going to be addressed in the upcoming like months and years as we get more experience with these medications. They definitely have multiple potential applications and patients can have relatively remarkable responses to them. But I think we're all, of course, very interested in safety, especially for conditions that have alternative therapeutics that we have better experience with. But I think over time, it's going to probably improve and we'll get more comfortable with them. Have you been prescribing these, Michelle? A few patients with um, alopecia areata on therapy with, with baricitinib. I've got a couple of people on therapy with ipatacitinib. Um, it's so far gone well for those patients. We've had a lot of extensive counseling, a lot of screening for any um, extenuating risk factors. I've been comfortable with the um, patients that we started these treatments for, but we've been relatively exhaustive in our discussions <laughs> about potential side effects. And I've had a number of patients that haven't been ready to use those yet because of those discussions. So I think that as we become more nuanced and have a better discernment as to what side effects truly belong to the medications that are approved for our conditions, that will probably develop greater comfort in using them. My hangups are, I think the IL-413 inhibitors are safer even though I think and they work really well. are very safe, and they work really yeah. well. So I usually start with dupilumab or in adults nowadays, trilokinumab, just to see if I can stop it in four months and their disease won't come back, because as we discussed before, one of the clinical trials showed that. So I usually like to start there for atopic dermatitis. Mm -hmm. And then for alopecia areata, you know, baricitinib's fine, but the trial didn't really blow you away with its success. We discussed it here. And also, you have to have pretty significant disease before... Mm -hmm you really qualify. And then I also have certain sort of psychological hangups about the cost when it oh, comes yeah, to treating sure. alopecia areata specifically. Um, but I do have, you know, half a dozen or so patients on these JAK inhibitors. Yeah. For the patients that I'm treating with them, there's either been a reason why they didn't feel comfortable using an injectable biologic or a different sort of extenuating circumstance that sort of facilitated that choice. I do think, you know, when we do have sort of an embarrassment of riches with choices to treat some of these things that previously the only thing we had to treat was basically corticosteroids and skincare. You know, I think that um, figuring out which patients are the best fit for which therapeutic is going to be part of the art and science of practicing dermatology in our brave new world. <laughs> well, that's it for that study. Thanks well, guys for doing of, it. Nice and straightforward, hopefully. Speaking of vascular things, um, I'm going to go over a very important entity, um, fortunately a very rare one, but something that you want to be able to recognize if you are confronted with it. And so this is a very nice clinical pathologic challenge out of JAMA Dermatology. 
entitled Numerous Angiomatous Lesions in an Infant. The chief authors are Catherine Riley and Kayani Habashian, and they're out of Georgetown. And herein, they present a three-month-old boy who was referred to their institution for evaluation of multiple cutaneous red papules. You hear a baby referred to an academic center for a bunch of red papules, and your brain probably goes straight to infantile hemangioma, which is very reasonable because those are orders of magnitude more common than this entity. Um, but when they examined the patient, they found that the presentation didn't really fit with an infantile hemangioma type story. So the guardian for the baby first reported noticing the papules at birth. And then during the following months, the papules grew in number and size, involved the head, neck, extremities, right palm, mons, pubis, and, and the buttocks. And at the height of severity, the patient had 39 lesions, some of which were associated with ulceration and bleeding. The patient was a full-term baby born by spontaneous vaginal delivery. Birth mother hadn't received any prenatal care. And the infant and the mother didn't have any known history of environmental or occupational exposure to anything hazardous. The paternal family medical history was not remarkable, and the maternal family history was not known. The physical exam demonstrated numerous bright red macules and papules and plaques, ranging in size from 1 um, millimeter to 2.3 centimeters, and many of them had hemorrhagic crust or dark scale. Additional exam demonstrated that the infant... Uh, had retrognathia, thickened maxillary frenulum, and anterior ankyloglossia. So the, of course, present their differential is this multifocal infantile hemangioma, basillary angiomatosis, multifocal lymphangioendotheliomatosis with thrombocytopenia, which sounds like a word you would make up if you were trying to come up with a disease. It reminds me of like herpes syphilis itisosis that um, Peter on the Family Guy comes up with as an excuse for Chris to miss school one day. <laughs> He's like, he's too sick to come to school. He has um, herpes syphilis itisosis. So this um, lymphangioendotheliomatosis kind of name reminded me of that. It, of course, has nothing to do with herpes or syphilis. And then the congenital disseminated pyogenic granuloma were all in the differential for this infant's presentation. The histopathology as a pathologist, for me, that was the censure for the diagnosis as it, re as it relates this nice lobulated capillary proliferation, which is a very typical pyogenic granuloma. Uh, so the diagnosis of congenital disseminated pyogenic granuloma was confirmed um, with the upper dermal lobulated capillary proliferation that they saw on biopsy. They did some immunostaining and the lesion was CD31 and SMA positive and D240 and GLUT1 negative. And D240 is a lymphatic marker. GLUT1 would be positive in infantile hemangiomas. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, yes. Thank you. I always forget to do this when I'm on my own. Yeah, you're um, just rolling right along. I know. Pimping just Bell chugging. standing on the side of the road. Pimping Bell like, is hey, like, what about me? It's, it's got a koala clip to it today, and the koala's soulful dark eyes are looking at me like, why have you forgotten me? So, so you know this is a koality podcast. It is quality, high quality, I hope. So the D240 is lymphatic, GLUT1 is positive, and infantile hemangioma. And for the um, congenital disseminated pyogenic granuloma, we have CD31 and SMA positive, which would also be positive in a lot of other vascular proliferations. The patient had a normal CBC and a CMP, and their abdominal ultrasound was normal. However, MRI of the brain at four months of age showed a seven by five by six millimeter enhancing nodule on the posterior temporal dural, surf dorsal dural surface and enhancing exophytic soft tissue pol polyps all over the head and scalp. The patient had also had evidence of prior pineal hemorrhage, but was ascertained to be at low risk for stroke. At seven months visit, the patient's PGs had grown in number and size, and a large PG was removed with a surgical excision because it kept bleeding. They also did several shave removals of symptomatic lesions. 
At eight months, the MRI showed reduction of the size of the dural nodule. And the PGs became to involute, began to involute when the patient was nine months of age. And by 16 months of age, most of the pyogenic granulomas had resolved. And genetic testing in this infant were normal, uh, specifically for the genes that have been reported to be involved in PGs, which include ATR, BRAF, FEL, FLT4, um, HRAS, NRAS, KRAS, all the RASs, so many RASs. Uh, so this is a good place to start. To bet your ass those are the you, genes. You, you, you bet your RAS, your R-A-S. Um, so I looked back into different case reports of this entity as well as the largest case series. Uh, in the Journal of Pediatrics, not our literature, but a great article um, in 2020, Alotromeri, I'm not pronouncing that right, Alomari, yeah, Alomari at all. Um, they described a series of eight children who had the same condition, the congenital disseminated pyogenic granuloma. In these eight children, lesions were found in the brain in seven out of eight. So many of the case reports of this, other isolated case reports that I read as well, most of them featured intracranial involvement, which I think is a very important potential feature of this entity. So seven out of those eight children had um, brain lesions, four had liver, three had spleen lesions, and then there was involvement of muscles, bone, and peritoneum in three to four patients, and intestinal and mesentery in two. There were also rare cases, just one patient each, of spinal cord, lung, kidney, pancreas, and adrenal involvement. The cerebral and visceral lesions can become hemorrhagic, and the cerebral hemorrhage can cause neurologic sequela. So this is a distinct multi-system aggressive disorder that can affect very important structures. It's critical to recognize this because of the risk of death from cerebral involvement. Um, now, in terms of treatment, some of the infants with this condition have been treated with propranolol and improved, but other patients have not been treated with that agent and have improved spontaneously. So it's a little bit difficult to tell if there is a um, sort of therapeutic of choice for this condition. The um, kind of discussion includes the first incidence of this reported in the literature, which was by Browning and colleagues in 2009. I read that report as well. Only uh, rare cases have been reported in the medical literature, less than 20. And the histopathology is typical for a pyogenic granuloma. So capillary proliferation, enlarged endothelial cells, uh, highly vascular granulation tissue. If you remember the first couple times you met a pyogenic granuloma under the microscope, you were probably very concerned it was some kind of vascular malignancy because those endothelial cells can be kind of large, um, but they are benign. Diagnosis um, can be confirmed with immunohistochemical staining as discussed. The CD31 should be positive, as should SMA, and GLUT1 and D240 should be negative. There's not really a great um, identification of what the pathogenesis of this condition is, but they think there may be imbalance between pro and anti-angiogenic pathways. The condition typically presents in infancy with these numerous bright pink to red, smooth, lobulated vascular macules that may ulcerate or crust, and they grow in number and size in the first few months of life and then gradually regress throughout infancy. Again, importantly, they can involve the brain and musculoskeletal syndrome system as well as visceral organs, and they can cause life-threatening hemorrhage. They can also be associated with transient coagulopathy, which can be severe. So congenital diffuse pyogenic granuloma and multifocal infantile hemangiomas, they both have a proliferative and an involutive phase, and they involve the neonatal period. But the multifocal infantile hemangioma tends to develop after the first weeks of life instead of being present at birth, and cranial involvement is less common. The histopathology of the multifocal infantile hemangioma is going to be different as well. So an infantile hemangioma kind of looks like an angioma that doesn't know when to quit. So it's closely packed vascular channels with a single endothelial layer. 
And then immunohistochemically, you can confirm the diagnosis of infantile hemangioma with a GLUT1 staining, which is also expressed on placental vasculature. And of course, that stain is negative with the congenital disseminated pyogenic granuloma. Basilar angiomatosis is definitely in the differential. Um, now, this is going to typically present in patients who are immunocompromised. It would be uncommon in an infant to have this presentation. As you know, this is an infectious disease caused by Bartonella hensley or Bartonella quintana. And you can see similar histology to a pyogenic granuloma, but you kind of see smudgy material in between the vascular channels that hopefully will clue you into do a Worth and Starry stain which can show clumps of the bacterial rods. In the differential also is multifocal lymphangioendotheliomatosis with thrombocytopenia, try saying that three times fast. Um, this neoplasm is negative for D240. It's positive for something called LYVE, which is lymphatic vessel endothelial hyaluronin receptor, which is also present in yolk sacs, for my reading, fun. Um, this is a condition that can also present at birth um, with numerous red-brown to blue macules or thin, broad plaques and can involve the gastrointestinal tract and can present with thrombocytopenia and gastrointestinal hemorrhage. The histopathology is different. So the histopathology would show as dermal and subcutaneous proliferations of thin-walled vessels lined by hobnailed endothelial cells with intraluminal uh, papillary projections, and CD31 and LYVE would be positive, although the other lymphatic markers, including GLUT1 and D240, would be negative. So this condition, the congenital disseminated pyogenic granuloma, it's imperative to diagnose it early with frequent monitoring. Um, patients should have CBC and metabolic panules regularly and coagulopathy should be determined. Uh, there are no standard treatment guidelines, but um, they can have catastrophic intracranial hemorrhage. So MRI and abdominal ultrasonography should be pre performed and genetic testing may be an avenue in the future to help identify which babies may, may benefit from different therapeutics. But a kind of striking entity with some less scary things in the differential, my nightmare would be that somebody's trying to get a baby into CS that has this condition and they're not able to, and it's, you know, somebody perceives that this patient probably just has multifocal infantile hemangiomas, which is still an urgency, but might not have as much of a dire prognosis as this condition. So I think any infant with numerous um, red papules probably merits relatively urgent evaluation by a dermatologist. So I had never heard about this before, even though I'm a pediatric dermatologist and I'm supposed to know about stuff like this. One reason is probably because it's super rare, less than 20 mm -hmm. cases reported throughout world history. Uh, that's not very many. So I don't biopsy all of the things that look like multifocal infantile hemangiomas that come across our clinic. So the trick is going to be, it seems like biopsy really makes the diagnosis here. And when are we going to biopsy and when not to? Well, these are generally present at birth, it looks like. Mm -hmm. And based on the photographs, they're sort of more varied in appearance. A lot of times, multifocal infantile hemangiomatosis looks like a bunch of little red papules. Occasionally, there's one or two that are larger, but they look fairly classic for infantile hemangiomas. In these pictures, some of them look like that, and then some of the others look pretty funny. So I suppose that's the most important issue here. And then MRI of the brain and ultrasound of the abdomen are what you want to do. Timolol perhaps works for sort of run-of-the-mill pyogenic granulomas, maybe a little. It's been disappointing generally, but perhaps propranolol would make sense. And then, of course, you know, your neurosurgery colleagues, if you need them. Mm -hmm. I think that the important thing with this is that any infant with numerous erythematous papules should be evaluated. And then multifocal infantile hemangiomas and congenital disseminated pyogenic granuloma 
the workup for them can include for both of them imaging. I think that if you're presented with a baby that has multiple erythematous lesions that have ulcerations or crusting, your concern for the potential of this congenital di disseminated pyogenic granuloma might be higher and it might push you to biopsy quicker. I want to talk more about babies because, of Let's course, I like babies. babies. And I want to take another trip in our Dermosphere Wayback Machine. I want to go way back to the year 2012. What are you doing in the year 2012, Michelle? I was in St. Louis. I was um, an assistant professor in St. Louis teaching the fabulous residentes there and hanging out with the inestimable Nicole Burkemper and Yadira Hurley and um, Sophia Chowdhury and Mary Guo and uh, Claudia Vidal, wonderful human beings. Oh, and Deanna Glazer who is a cosmetic dermatologist extraordinaire. Well, I was between my, well, it was third to fourth year medical school for me. I was doing a lot of away rotations. Uh, Barack Obama was reelected to a second term as president. <laughs> People were watching The Dark Knight Rises, which is kind of exciting because it was filmed in Pittsburgh, which is where I went to medical school. So we saw them filming it. Magic the Gathering releases included the seminal Return to Ravnica. <laughs> And everybody was listening to Carly Rae Jepsen singing Call Me Maybe. So call me maybe. <laughs> See, I always think about actually queuing up a musical selection here. But first of all, I'm worried we'll get sued. And second, I know you're going to sing it anyway. <laughs> so in 2012, in addition to us having all that fun... The following people are writing an article about Collodion Baby. Renata Prado and Anna Bruckner, and then Tracy Funk, former mentor of mine from uh, Fellowship. Shout out to you. And this was from the JAD back in 2012 called Collodion Baby, an update with a focus on practical management. And of course, I'm talking about it today because we had such a baby admitted recently and needed to remember how to properly take care of them. So the term Collodion Baby was first used way back in 1884 when Grover wow. Cleveland was elected to his first term as president. <laughs> and do you know what collodion means? It's like a sausage casing, right? Like it's a, a membrane that's like, I know it's, there was a kind of film that was called that maybe, but you why seem you to be swinging me? in the right direction. So okay. according to the internet, it's a syrupy solution of nitrocellulose in a mixture of alcohol and ether used for coating things, chiefly in surgery and in a former photographic process. Intriguing. So collodion baby is quite rare, but occasionally babies are born with this sort of almost saran wrap looking membrane along them that's called a collodion membrane. And it can be from numerous genetic diseases. Most of them are various types of ichthyosis, but it's usually from an autosomal recessive congenital ichthyosis. So uh, as the genetic underpinnings for some of these diseases are being discerned, the nomenclature is changing. So nowadays, pediatric dermatologists will say autosomal recessive congenital ichthyosis, ARCI, RCI, RC, to encompass conditions that used to be called things like lamellar ichthyosis or congenital ichthyosiform erythroderma. So for example, I'll say this patient has ARCI, lamellar ichthyosis phenotype or something like that. And these are mutations in things like TGM1, Contaminase and ALOX E3 or ALOX 12B. And if you have a Clodion baby these days, genetic testing probably will give you the answer as to what's really going on. Uh, a particularly nice one, by the way, hashtag not sponsored, GeneDX. They are a company that runs this stuff and they specifically have a panel, the Exome DX Slice Congenital Ichthyosis panel. It takes about four to six weeks to come back. And while you're waiting for that to come back, 
The patient's phenotype may become obvious because the collodion membrane usually resolves in a few weeks. There are a lot of other genetic diseases that can present with collodion baby. There's like a gigantic list of them, and they include... I'm just going to rattle them off. Ichthyosis vulgaris. Weird, right? So common. Apparently, you can get a collodion baby. Mm-hmm. A recessive X-linked ichthyosis, epidermolytic ichthyosis, bathing suit ichthyosis, self-healing collodion baby. About 6% of babies, they sort of get better, though they usually are a little bit ichthyotic later along. Neutral lipid storage disease with ichthyosis, trichothiodystrophy with ichthyosis, Conradi Hunerman Happel syndrome, KID syndrome, KID, probably remember that as keratitis ichthyosis deafness syndrome. I also throw in the immunodeficiency in there. I like to call it Kiddie syndrome. <laughs> Loracrine keratoderma, ARC syndrome, which stands for arthrogryphosis renal dysfunction cholestasis syndrome. Click syndrome, K-L-I-C-K, stands for keratosis linearis with ichthyosis congenita and sclerosing keratoderma. Hands up if you've ever even heard of that one. I remember it's in one table somewhere in the bologna textbook. Also, hollow carboxylase synthetase deficiency can present as collodion baby, Gaucher disease type 2, hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia, congenital hypothyroidism. How about that? Nice. Coraxitrachitic syndrome, which I had never heard of before. And then PPK with anogenital leukokeratosis have all been described as presenting with collodion baby. But again, that usually was- it's one of these autosomal recessive congenital ichthyoses. That was amazing. So you'll get called from an outside hospital. There's a baby. They look funny. We think it's like one of these derm things. Can we send them to your NICU? And of course they can. So the most important thing to know in this newborn period is that the collodion membrane is a terrible barrier. You'd think it would be better (laughs) because the baby's like coated in saran wrap. So you'd think it would be like a great barrier, but it's in fact a terrible one. So babies lose water, they lose heat, and that stuff can be a problem. So insensible losses and temperature instability are kind of the big issues. So they be, should be in the NICU. They should be in a warm, humidified isolate. Authors differ on the exact percentage of humidity, but these experts represent 60%, which is what we're doing here. Their temperature should be constantly monitored. They recommend that the patient's weight be followed daily because that can tell you about their caloric and Um, water intake and their electrolytes should be followed closely daily for the first week for example a good emollient like petroleum jelly is a good plan though evidence is a little bit conflicting but these days with modern NICUs it's probably a good idea so consider greasing the baby up about four times a day if the baby seems uncomfortable so sometimes this collodion membrane can kind of fissure and leave kind of these raw red areas if the baby looks like it's a sad baby when you're cleaning it studies in (laughs) epidermal bullosa patients have shown that Normal saline is less painful than water if you're cleansing somebody. So you can consider that. And you can also approximate that at home by diluting one teaspoon of pool salt in one liter of water. Huh. Um, Because the barrier is so crappy, in addition to stuff you don't want leaving, stuff you don't want getting into the body can get in more easily. So percutaneous toxicity from medications is an issue. So you don't want to be like putting a lot of keratolytics on these babies to try to get rid of the collodion membrane, for example, because they can absorb the salicylic acid or the lactic acid or whatever and become toxic. So just like don't put a lot of actual medicine on them. Also, they're more prone to skin infections of various types for the same reason. So keep a close eye on them for that reason. This collodion membrane, like 
stuff that makes it up can degrade and clog up their ears. So junk in the ears or in the nose can be an issue and can prevent babies from being able to hear and stuff. So they might need ENT eval to see if they need to remove debris from their ear canals. Because this membrane is kind of tight, it can cause eclabium and ectropion. So eclabium can prevent the baby from feeding appropriately and their caloric needs are significantly increased because of all these insensible water losses and the temperature instability. So have a low threshold to consider an NG tube. And then ectropion, if it looks like the baby can't close their eyes all the way, then you might want to talk to Opto and they could probably represent the right kind of eye drops and stuff. That's this basically the short story. Mm-hmm. NICU, humidified isolates, and then follow those things to make sure baby is safe for the first three to four weeks of life until the collodion membrane is sort of naturally shed. They do say, remember to like keep an eye on the baby and transfer them to an open crib when it's ready. Uh, they say they like to transfer to an open crib when the baby has adequate caloric intake, appropriate weight gain, and absence of complications associated with the skin barrier. And other studies and other types of premature babies have shown that delaying transfer to an open crib crib sort of not great it just sort of delays the whole process increases length of hospital stay and things like that they also point out to remember parental bonding you want to make sure you know parents don't think their baby is some weird creature but they still come and treat it like a baby so they do recommend this quote kangaroo care where babies are placed skin to skin with their parent as for as much time as possible they also remind us about support groups. So sometimes I am remiss on rem- mentioning support groups to parents, but no matter what your child's skin condition, there's probably a support group out there. A lot of times I think they're gathering online, like especially Facebook. The one specifically for ichthyosis in the U.S. is called FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, stands for Foundation for Ichthyosis and Related Skin Types. I find that some parents are like just not into it at all, but other patients and parents can get some really good both information and emotional support from these groups. And then these authors recommend following up a former Clodion baby every three months for the first year of life. Finally, if you're thinking about differential, if you have a baby you think might have a Clodion membrane, there's three other things to make sure that they don't have. Netherton syndrome, Sjogren-Larsen syndrome, and Harlequin ichthyosis. Harlequinic theosis is kind of the dramatic evil version of collodion membrane. They have thick <laughs> armored plate-like scales. In the old days, this was basically a death sentence. These days, about half of patients survive with good NICU care. But it's basically super dramatic. It's, it's hard to miss. Um, and then there's this ichthyosis prematurity syndrome. They do get an erythematous swollen skin that's covered by this greasy, thick vernix caseosa-like scale, which could be mistaken for a clodion membrane. These babies are premature, whereas clodion babies are usually born at term. And then this ichthyosis prematurity syndrome, often patients have asphyxiated some of this stuff, and then their skin rapidly improves to sort of a mild chronic ichthyosis. It's caused by mutations in SLC27A4. And then when babies with Netherton syndrome are born, they can have a generalized erythroderma, scaling and peeling of the skin, but not a true collodion membrane. They also have really bad barrier function, though. Yeah, I think that these babies, they're they're one of the more common calls we're going to get from the NICU. So I think having a rational approach to them is really good. The Gene DX you were talking about, um, is that something you do through insurance or is that a consumer-based test? We get it through their insurance. I think it's a little bit easier to get stuff covered through their insurance if the patient's in the hospital also. 
Very then we have a genetics, you know, division here. And so they can also help with that stuff. Very nice. Well, speaking of things that are influenced by genes. Before we move on, I do want to shout out to my partner, Sarah Cipriano, who had put together a really great protocol for treating these patients and directed me to this article. So thank you, Dr. Cipriano. That is, I think, a very important thing to do. We need to acknowledge people who've put in extra work to help us all take better care of our patients. Well, acknowledging the next group is also going to be great. So this is going to talk about a a cancer that can be genetically determined, although we're not going to really investigate the genetic aspect of it in this article. This is actually going to look at timing, an issue that's quite prescient in the era of COVID pandemic delay treatment and um, may help us to expedite things whenever we're having trouble with securing the proper treatment for patients. So this is an article out of the JAD, um, October 2022, entitled Delays in the Surgical Treatment of Melanoma are Associated with Worsened Overall and Melanoma-Specific Mortality, a Population-Based Analysis. The chief authors are David Joing and Thomas Naktsecht, and they are out of the Department of Internal Medicine in Pittsburgh, uh, Case Western in Cleveland. Go Cleveland! Um, I, Go Pittsburgh! I, I mean, right? So I trained in um, Cleveland and uh, Luke went to medical school in Pittsburgh. So we, we actually have an accidental crosstown rivalry, don't we, Luke? But, no, we both benefited from Doug Cress's mentorship. Exactly. Doug Cress solves all problems, like I said. So um, here we're going to talk about this delays in surgical treatment. And basically what they did was they wanted to look at the impact of surgical treatment delays on melanoma-specific mortality and overall mortality. And so they looked at patients with stage one to three um, cutaneous melanoma through the SEER database. They identified over 100,000 cases, and they included patients that had documentation of the time from diagnosis to definitive surgery and follow-up time. They were able to find that across all stages, treatment delays of three to five months were associated with worse melanoma-specific survival, and that any delay beyond one month was associated with worse overall mortality. So the melanoma-specific mortality and the overall mortality both worsened with delays. Those delays presented earlier with overall mortality. The melanoma-specific mortality increased after three to five months. They then did a subgroup analysis based off of stage. So for stage one, which was the area where you had the most impact with surgical delays, patients with type 1 melanoma, or sorry, stage 1 melanoma, had an increased overall mortality with any delay greater than a month for their surgical treatment and a greater increase uh, at three to five months. Their melanoma-specific mortality increased only at three to five months. For stage two melanomas, their overall mortality increased after a three to five month delay, and their melanoma-specific mortality increased only after a six month delay or greater. And for stage three melanoma, they didn't find any change in overall mortality or melanoma-specific mortality with treatment delay. Now they surmise in the discussion that the reason they didn't see these changes show up in the greater stage melanoma is that adjuvant chemotherapy plays a greater role in the treatment of these patients. And additionally, there was a relatively small group of patients with stage three melanoma versus the earlier stages. And so that may have kind of effaced some of the changes that you might perceive with treatment delays. In the discussion of the article, they also emphasize the importance of cutaneous melanoma, which is dermatologist you don't really have to convince us of, but it's a very common cancer. Um, it's the fifth most commonly diagnosed malignancy in males following prostate, lung, colon, bladder cancer, and the sixth most commonly diagnosed malignancy in females, or the fifth, depending on which source you look at, um, lead, led ahead by breast, lung, colon, and uterine cancer. And of course, those 
figures always exclude basal cell carcinoma and basal cell, squamous cell carcinoma because those would be the number one and number two spots otherwise. The incidence of melanoma does continue to increase, especially in older individuals, and there have been over 100,000 cases reported that were new in 2020 and over 6,000 new deaths in 2020. The varying effects of treatment delays on survival have been looked at before. Um, delays between biopsy and wide local excision of melanoma have not previously been shown to be associated with worse overall mortality in a Scottish cohort. And prior studies using the National Cancer Database have shown that earlier treatment of stage one melanoma can be associated with improved overall mortality, but surgical timing wasn't associated with any survival changes in higher stage melanoma stages two and three. The limitation with the National Cancer Database was the lack of cancer-specific survival data, and so this study improves upon that using the SEER database. So I'm not going to get too deep into the methods, but I do think that they did this study in a sound way. They defined time to treatment from the time from biopsy to definitive treatment, and for analysis of single melanoma stage, they um, combined all aggregates within that group. So stage 1A, 1B were assessed together as stage 1. And this so, study was not done over the COVID potential delay time. Because no. Because that probably wouldn't give you enough time to determine mortality, really. So it was done yeah. like between 2010 and 2016, looks like. Yes. So I think that the um, information is important based upon some of the delays that were encountered in the COVID pandemic. But I agree with you that the um, like pandemic data was not included in, in this assessment. So I think the take-home points here are... Earlier treatment is better once you diagnose a melanoma. In our practice, we tend to treat melanomas as a dermatologic urgency, if not emergency, and try to get the excisions done as expediently as possible. Um, sometimes you will run into patients that either aren't ready to have the definitive treatment psychologically or underestimate the importance of getting it done with expedience. And so I think one of the things that this article will be helpful for is demonstrating to patients that it really is in your best interest that we treat this quickly. Um, I think that additionally, it's helpful to potentially bypass roadblocks from either insurance companies or departmental policies and procedures that need to be addressed. So I think that these are all important factors. Uh, the big take home points again were that in stage one melanoma, the changes were more significant. So earlier stage melanomas benefit the most from most prompt treatment, but all melanoma stages should be addressed as time, in as timely a fashion as possible. Other things that kind of increased or decreased mortality um, we're also enumerated in the article, and I'm not going to go over each one of these because most of them are intuitive, like increasing breslow depth worsens melanoma-specific mortality, ulceration worsens melanoma-specific mortality, um, patients that have involvement in um, certain body areas, like acrolentigenous melanoma, can have a worse mortality risk. And I think these are all things that we um, know. These are great statistics to bring forward in this analysis since they had all this information. I'm grateful that they presented these. But I think the, the meat of the article really is that we should be taking care of these patients as in, in as expedient a fashion as possible to help facilitate their best outcome. So I think this is going to have the biggest impact for like institutional approaches. So VA, I'm looking at you specifically. So I have yes. been involved in at least one VA where inexplicably, rather than using the local academic center that was there with dermatopathologists, the VA instead would send the slides like across the country, two time zones away for, I don't know, some contracted dermatopathology group to look at the slides. And 
of course, not only does that like take time for the physical slides to travel across the country, be read, and then that information transmitted to the potential treating doctors, but there's also just a bunch more like steps and areas where things could get lost or missed. So uh, I saw patients who had to wait like three months for their biopsy results. And of course, that was unacceptable at the time. And based on this, it's extra unacceptable. So um, figure it out, VA. <laughs> yeah, the, I think that the VA system does a lot of really good things. But one of the places that they fall down on is that they treat physicians like business contractors. And so I feel like they're always looking for somebody to act in a corrupt fashion <laughs> or something like that. And they put a lot of guardrails in place that I think actually lead to treatment delays and are usually not necessary. You know, like they're worried about self-referral and things like that for contracted people who are on salary. <laughs> and so it's like self-referral under a salary situation is actually not self-serving. It's the other direction. But you want to take care of the patient. That's the important part. Well, I don't want to go too far on this tangent, I guess, but I think just bureaucracy is the problem. Like there's contracted people and, you know, in the modern world, what, what does it matter how far away they are? We're still getting it done. And this is the contracted group and they had a lower bid and blah, blah, blah. But this is why it matters. All right. This is a great episode, Michelle, because I'm going to learn about two different things that babies can get that I didn't know about before. So you already That's talked awesome. about this congenital disseminated pyogenic granuloma. And now we're going to talk about infantile anogenital digitate keratoses, a case series of a novel entity. I've never I'm so this. glad you're going over this because like, this is something that I've actually had one patient that had, and we were, we were consulted to rule out um, abuse. So I'm excited to hear your presentation. Well, the authors include Efrat Bar-Ilan and Ayelet Olech. These group, the group is from Hungary and from Israel. So it's a case series of seven babies who had this benign, self-resolving, rare dermatosis, which is called infantile anogenital digitate keratosis. So digitate keratoses. I felt like that was kind of vaguely in my memory bank from my time as a resident, like digitate keratosis. Like, I think that sounds kind of familiar, uh, but these are rare yellow white little bumpy spicules that can appear in various parts of the body. That's what this digitate keratosis group of things is. They can be inherited or they can be acquired and they can be localized or generalized. And localized forms that have previously been described include some palmoplantar digitate keratoses, specifically things like arsenical keratoses. Oh, I kind of remember that one. Spiny keratoderma and multiple phyliform verruque. So these are like little tiny one to two millimeter little spikes coming up from somebody's palm. You can also apparently get digitate keratosis after radiation. So there's post-radiation digitate keratosis. And then there's various forms of facial digitate keratosis, including trichodysplasia spinulosa, which we've talked about before. That's on the nosy. And then hyperkeratotic spicules. But this classification doesn't yet include this infantile anogenital digitate keratosis thing. So these authors are describing this novel entity. So it shows up in babies in the perianal area, sometimes spilling over onto the genitals. And the most important thing is that it's not dangerous, it's asymptomatic, and it spontaneously resolves over months. But it's not warts, it's not molluscum, they're little, little spiny bumps. 
there were seven cases and also one previously reported case. Seven of these eight cases have been boys, so seems like it's more common in boys probably. All of them were under age 16 months, both at presentation and when this thing eventually resolved, resolved within a few months usually. They are healthy babies. They otherwise don't have a diaper rash or any sort of irritation necessarily, though generally there's a little bit of background erythema and medications don't generally help. You might want to look up the pictures in this article because it's hard to sort of picture exactly what's going on without seeing it, but you get to see a lot of baby butts in this picture. Uh, but in the perianal skin, these little tiny one to two millimeter yellow white little spikes, they don't like project very far. It's not like little porcupine, but they're little bumps. And to a dermatologist's eye, I don't think they look that much like warts or molluscum, but I suppose somebody else could think that they might look like that. But if you see something like that, you can say, oh, don't worry about it. This is fine. I think that's a, a great thing to be aware of and you know, certainly something to have in your back pocket to pull out if you get that kind of consult. Fortunately, I would say 90% of the consults that I've ever had, maybe even 95, to assess a small child for sexual abuse have been something else. Um, they've been this condition. They've been perianal molluscum. Um, they've been jacquette's rose of diaper dermatitis. Uh, but they, most of the time, fortunately, have not been sexually transmitted diseases. Unfortunately, a few of those cases have been that. I think that's one of the um, most confronting things as a dermatologist is to have to enter into that sacred space of trying to help protect a child, but also not harm a family. And so I think that this diagnosis and its awareness are going to help people take better care of their patients. So thank you for presenting it, Luke. I always like learning new things, especially about babies, especially safe things. Well, speaking about safe things, what's safer than aloe vera? Hard to think of anything. That's why I'm drinking some right now. Ah. <laughs> Just don't overdo it. You can eventually get a little gastrointestinal distress if you overconsume. So we're going to discuss now out of Academia Letters, a case report of actinic keratosis treated with aloe barbadensis mill leaf gel. Um, this is by authors Rosa Diretto and Anna Lima. And they present herein a case report of a patient who is a 56-year-old woman that got diagnosed with an actinic keratosis um, for a one-centimeter lesion on her leg. Um, it was painless, non-itchy, and had some indurated borders and necrofibritic um, center with watery exudate, which is their description here. And they do show a picture of that, and from their, descri their description is consistent with the clinical image. Uh, the patient was seen by their dermatologist in the UK. They didn't do a skin biopsy. They interrogated the lesion dermoscopically and interpreted it to be a actinic keratosis. The patient was prescribed 5-fluorouracil and a fusidic acid betamethasone cream for daily application. I looked to see if there was a regimen where you put fusidic acid, betamethasone, and Effudex together. I think that probably the fusidic acid, betamethasone topical was there as sort of a rescue to help solve inflammation and decrease bacterial overgrowth in treatment with Effudex. Sometimes when we're treating patients with Effudex, we might give them some topical steroids and maybe some topical antibiotic to have if they develop an exuberant reaction or if they get secondary impetigenization of the involved areas. So I think that's probably what they were doing with the betamethasone and fusidic acid. Um, the patient developed irritation, understandably, from the 5-fluorouracil. And the lesion continued to get larger. They have clinical images of its expansion. The patient then started to alternate between the 5-fluorouracil and the fusidic acid betamethasone cream. 
and the lesion continued to worsen. So then the patient went on a vacation to Portugal and went a bit rogue and decided to treat themselves with a um, application of aloe barbadensis mill, um, which was extracted from the aloe vera plant. Now, this wasn't just any aloe vera plant. This person didn't go out into the desert in Portugal and find themselves a handy aloe vera plant. They actually got this preparation from the Instituto Superior de Agronomica, which is in um, the University of Lisbon, Portugal. So it was kind of a curated uh, plant. So it wasn't just any aloe. So was it like at the gift shop or did she like steal a little aloe vera leaf as she was walking by the arboretum? You know, I have created a rich backstory for this character who I don't know very well. But my idea is that, you know, how did this connection get made right between the people who wrote this article and between this patient? So in in my fever brain, um, I'm sort of hallucinating a history here where this patient must have some kind of connection to somebody in academic medicine and they were on vacation they're like help this thing keeps getting worse and they set them up with somebody at the university of lisbon in um, portugal so that they could have something to use to treat the lesion but they could have bought it from a um, gift shop or as you suggest they might be an international criminal with you know intrigue and they perhaps you know snuck in at night from the ceiling i perceive um into the greenhouse of the Portugal, um, University of Portugal uh, Institute of Agriculture. But, but at I... least they aren't using copywritten music without permission. <laughs> You're going to get us in trouble. I'm told Stop you could do that. like 20 seconds or something. Oh my god! I think you're actually right. You can sample a certain amount of music before you get in trouble with the copyright law. But I digress. Anyway, so she achieved this application of the aloe vera gel. And she did it in kind of an interesting way. So she would put an adhesive bandage around her leg with a slice of the unpeeled aloe vera leaf in direct contact with the skin. To me, that's counter to the way most people use aloe vera, because most of the time you're trying to get the gel from the inside. So if it is not, um, you know, obviously it's been cut one end and the other end to get this smaller piece. But this, you know, it's, it hasn't been opened up in the traditional way people usually use aloe vera. So the unpeeled aloe vera leaf was on the skin. And there is a picture included in the article describing this. And it does look like they just kind of chopped off one of the little tentacly leaves of the aloe vera plant and shoved it under a bandage. Um, in the morning, she would then exude the gel from that piece of aloe vera leaf and then massage the gel directly into the lesion. And so I don't know if we were just warming up the aloe vera gel overnight with the skin or if there's therapeutic benefit to the skin itself. That's something that I'm unaware of. So I'll have to potentially do a little more looking into that. Um, in one week, the seroprelant discharge stopped. The center had become fully necrotic and then the erythema decreased and the lesion eventually healed relatively quickly. So she followed up with her exam um, in London. She went back to the dermatologist. And the, heal- the actinic keratosis had healed, so they took some new photographs. Now, of course, your question as a dermatologist might be, well, they had a therapeutic exposure to 5-fluorouracil, and then this resolved. So what did the heavy lifting? Was the 5-fluorouracil the heavy lift, and the aloe vera just soothed the inflammation that resulted from the therapeutic effect of 5-fluorouracil, or is something else going on? So this patient in March of 2017, so in 2016, it had looked like it resolved. In March of 2017, a new actinic keratosis lesion showed up on the right leg, same leg, close to where the previous lesion had been. Um, To me, it's difficult from the photographs to exclude the possibility that this is a recurrence of the previous lesion versus a new lesion. Um, The way that the the photographs are kind of oriented, it's hard to directly compare one um, set of them to the other set. So it's hard to say if this is 
of occurrence or a new lesion in an area of field cancerization. But regardless, this time the patient started using the slice of the aloe vera leaf or the gel every morning. And the patient did this um, until the actinic keratosis remitted. So she got some improvement after the first four days and continued treatment for 39 days with only mild erythema, and then the lesion eventually completely resolved, and they do have clinical photos showing this um, effect of the treatment with the plant. So the discussion section goes over the understandable, like, intellectual gymnastics you have to go through to make sense out of this story a little bit, which is, it could have been the 5 fluorouracil the first time around. The aloe vera could have soothed the inflammation. The separate independent treatment with the aloe vera by itself was encouraging. The authors saliently point out that herbal products, natural products, naturoceuticals, naturopathic products, these treatments that are based upon contents of a specific plant are not all created equal. So every aloe vera product on the market is not necessarily going to have the same phytochemicals and the same biological activity. If you think about how important the region in which something is grown for something like wine, for example, the place that the same grape varietal the same species is grown, can determine many characteristics of the final product. Now, we're aware of that because we can taste, see, smell, and touch that, right? So whenever we're looking at, you know, wine, for example, the color of the wine, its aroma, the um, way that the tastes form, all of that is dependent upon the soil that the, the grape is grown in, the climate of the regional area, the amount of sunlight that it had. And for cosmeceuticals and naturoceuticals, a similar effect can occur based off of the area of cultivation, based off of how the plant is treated. Are a lot of herbicides used? Is it grown in a more organic way? What kind of sunlight exposure there is? Other invasive species can all determine the quality of the product that you end up putting on the skin. And so I think this is a big reason for some of the challenges that you have standardizing publications and studies based off of naturopathic treatments. I think a lot of natural products do work but it's difficult to have good quality control over individual plants. And so I think that this kind of points to an, a more important broad concept, which is natural products are great and they can be beneficial, but it is difficult to standardize them. So I think that there is an opportunity here for this institution in Portugal to look at potentially standardizing and purifying their sort of cultivated, um, it seems a bit heritage plant here to produce a product that might be then able to be studied in a controlled fashion. It would be wonderful to have the option to treat actinic keratoses with less pain with a more natural product and something that resolves the condition without as much discomfort. Because most of the time with the treatment of actinic keratoses, it's kind of like many other things in life where you have no pain, no gain. Uh, but I thought this was fascinating and very interesting and hopefully something that will be looked into further. Part of me worries about studies like this, that people are just going to go out there and start cutting off aloe vera leaves and sticking it on their AKs and assuming it'll work when, I don't know if it worked or not. It, this one person's one lesion that may have been an AK got better, perhaps coincidentally while this was happening. So, you know, case reports are nice because they're a good way to start and for further look into something. I do worry that when non-scientific people get a hold of stuff like this, which is increasingly easy thanks to the internet, that badness can actually come of it instead of goodness. I think that's actually been an unintended consequence of the open access model for publications. 
Um, I think in general, the open access model is nice because it's a democratization of information and it allows especially people in developing countries to access literature they might not otherwise have access to um, in the academic field. But it also does open up access to lay people who might not have the background training and understanding to discern important nuances in this type of report. So I think that case reports are very important because they can create a signal that can then help us investigate something further with more uh, robust studies and ways that we can actually determine if there's a statistically significant improvement in actinic keratosis with a particular therapeutic. I do agree with you that there is the potential danger that a layperson gets a hold of the information like this and then tries to treat actinic keratosis or worse, something that's a more significant cancer with um, the application of something you know, easy to acquire, non-scary, non-toxic, and it might create therapeutic delays. And as we just discussed, therapeutic delays with all skin cancers, but especially the most dangerous kind like melanoma, can create significant increases in morbidity and mortality. And some melanomas are colorless. Lay people are probably not terribly good at discerning the difference between an actinic keratosis versus a skin infection versus contact dermatitis versus squamous cell carcinoma or even mel amelanotic melanoma. So I think that with a bit of caution, this could be useful information, but I agree with you that we have to be thoughtful about how lay people will consume and utilize this kind of information. Well, that's all the time we've got today. So thanks, friends, for joining us. Thanks also to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah and to Texas Tech Dermatology for lending us Michelle. Today, we learned that atopic dermatitis does not seem to increase your risk of VTE, and neither does treating it with JAK inhibitors. We learned about congenital disseminated pyogenic granulomas. Do a biopsy if you're suspicious, and then if it is confirmed, get a brain MRI and an abdominal ultrasound. We learned how to take care of collodion babies, watch their water and temperature. We learned that delaying treatment of melanomas is bad. We learned about infantile anogenital digitate keratoses. Don't worry about it. And we learned a little bit about aloe vera plants. Thanks to all members of Team Dermosphere. We've got quite a few people helping us out. We really appreciate what you guys do. Team Dermosphere now includes Morgan Dykeman, Guy Kusecki, Michael Birdsall, Angie Huang, Haley Walsh, Aparna Nayak, and Neha Deo. Thanks a lot, guys. Among other things, they keep our social media accounts moving along. So you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find us on our webpage, dermospherepodcast.com, which has all our original episodes as well as links to all of the original articles. We also have another podcast that's been a little bit of a hiatus, but the episodes are certainly still out there. The other podcast is called SkinCast. SkinCast is a podcast for lay people who want to learn how to take the very best care of the skin they're in. It's about 15 to 20 minutes per episode. Typically, we cover one or two topics per episode. And we've covered topics such as allergic contact dermatitis to Halloween paints, um, acne and diet, psoriasis, uh, the treatment of warts, the treatment of hair loss, and sun protection. These are kind of bite-sized things to which you can direct lay people. Um, they are as accessible and evidence-based as possible. And those are accessible on um, the University of Utah's website, as well as, I believe, Spotify? Well, pretty much anywhere. And you can also find us at 
Hawaii Derm. And next month, February of 2023, Dermosphere is going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're going to have some swag. So if you're going to be there, come say hi. If you're not sure if you're going to go, well, you can still sign up. And if you use the promo code Dermosphere, you'll get a discount. That's all, guys. We will see you in two weeks. Thank you.